The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. What's on my mind today to share as a Dharma talk? Um, I'll continue to invite you on the kind of um, simplicity of a being as you listen to this Dharma talk. And just, you know, bring your body along, bring your mind along, and checking how you are periodic, uh, periodically. What I'm offering is not separate from it. Yeah? So I want to start by sharing um, a story. Uh, I recently read an article by Lama Rod Owens uh, called do you tr- do you know your true face? And in this um, article, uh, he wrote about after um, his uh, three-year uh, Dharma teacher training uh, training program, and he had a period of his uh, life that he felt quite uninspired, and even used the word "breakdown." You know, it's, um, it was challenging. And so he turned towards it, um, and very quickly he had an insight into what was happening. And so this is, uh, those are the words um, that he wrote. He said that my identity as a lama and a resident teacher had somehow choked my identity as a queer black man. I was privileging the Lama over Rod. And Rod, this being, and have many different needs, different roles, and different identities. And Rod got subsumed by Lama, the resident teacher. When I read this, I immediately resonated with it deeply. And and found much humility and um, wisdom in what he said. I think all of us probably have seen and this version of it in ourselves. Um, so in the pursuit of our own ambition, our hobby, our passion, or simply wanting to be who we wanted to be, you know, really wanted to be, very inspired for being this person, and um, we may have choked, and that's a um, Lama Rod Owen's word, or suffocated as other aspects of our beings. And so I want to share a, a story of my own. I remember um, some years ago in my work life, I um, was very busy and... Uh, was doing very well, and I got caught up by the momentum of it. And I remember there was one morning and that I had to get up to do a presentation that happened at 5.30 in the morning to a very important client. And I had hoped that my baby boy won't wake up 5.30 in the morning. And he was very young, and but you know what? The moment I started my presentation, he was sitting upstairs. Mommy, mommy. <laughs> and so 
um, but I ignored him because I got very important presentation right now and uh, I got to go do that. And I finished my presentation and went upstairs uh, to check him. And he was sitting by the stairs very quietly, holding a piece of paper in his hands. And uh, I looked at the paper, and he barely was able to write anything at that time. And um, it uh, said, You are the baddest mom I ever knew. (laughs) So that was a wake-up moment. Um, So... Just like uh, Lama Rod Owens, and I was privileging a scientist, a career woman, um, over a mother, a spouse, and you know, the rest, rest of me. And so it's uh, worthwhile to notice that uh, in each of us, there's a whole community within us, and there's a whole com- community around us. Um, our Dharma practice in what invites us to become aware. There's a whole dynamic of the different aspects of our being. When we're not aware, it's very easy that we create favorites, the ones that we really want to be, <laughs> and the ones that, you know, I'd rather they don't exist. Um, and so this brings me uh, to a short sutta that I want to share with you today called Kachana Sutta. This, this is in Samyutta Nikaya and in the chapter around uh, dependent origination. And so in this sutta, Venerable Kachana is asking uh, the Buddha a question about how to define right view. Um, well, many of you might be very familiar with uh, the notion of a right view, which is the first path factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And in this sutta, and the Buddha had a very specific definition for it, which I want to share. But in answering this question, the Buddha first made a few quite dramatic statements So he began by saying, Kachana, this world mostly relies on the due notions of existence and non-existence. So this world mostly relies on the due notions of existence and non-existence. Then um, I'll unpack this a little bit, and first by maybe unpacking the the word world the world. Often, um, uh, when the Buddha spoke, uh, speaks about, uh, spoke about the world, the world is not necessarily something kind of out there, but the world is often defined as uh, our direct experience through our sense contacts, you know, our six senses, sight, hearing, uh, smelling, tasting, touching, and our mental activities. And through this, our subjective experience um, come about, right? We make contacts with the sound, with the smell, and we can directly experience what's happening. 
And the broader world is kind of experienced through our senses as well. So there is, in a way, there is no world out there but through our direct experience with the senses. So the world, mostly or by and large, relies on the notions of existence and non-existence. What does this mean? And so existence, non-existence, in the Chinese parallel, uh, use the word becoming and non-becoming. Some of you might be familiar with this, and it's often um, present in the suttas. But if we go back to the stories I told early on, we can see that sometimes we get stuck um, in the idea of who we are, our identities, our roles. Uh, You know, I am so-and-so, and so so I must do so-and-so. And And, uh, when we have uh, this kind of... um, Ideas sometimes they're very deep uh, and subtle. We don't even know they exist. Sometimes they're maybe very visible momentarily. But when they really are uh, in the core of our being, what happens is that we can orient and organize our whole life around these ideas, right? And if you want, you want to be or you are a great poet, and your whole life activities could be centered around that notion. You know, six o'clock in the evening, you might forget about putting dinner on the table, <laughs> or you know, your child is asking to go out and play in the backyard. No, I'm busy. You know, I got to write this poem, and and so these ideas can become a basis or in this notion of we rely on these ideas to live our lives. And the opposite could be true also. You know, if uh, some of us may have parts of, of ourselves, we would rather them not be there. We have certain ideas that maybe I'm just not this material, you know, I'm just not an artist. And and maybe that's uh, something that's, happened very early on in our life. Um, very young, we had these ideas, I'm not good enough for a certain thing. And that get reinforced by culture around us or <clears throat> environment we're in. And then we have a deep-seated ideas. This is, you know, this is who we are, and, and we're, no, we're just not that. So, um, and then... With this kind of ideas, what can happen is that we also organize our uh, lives around these ideas. We may be organizing activities around this kind of uh, activities. Maybe we don't care about this part of us at all. We may even be violent against them uh, when these parts of us show up. And so there is, can be this sense of what the Buddha is pointing to, relying on non-existence, kind of really denying that. And um, Lama Rod Owens, in this article, uh, spoke a a bit about this, and he said, 
to resist naming our identity locations is to commit a kind of aggression toward ourselves and to further obscure blind spots that hurt others. Others are hurt when they're not seen. Invisibility is another form of violence and oppression. And so this non-existence in a way is also pointing at um, the, the invisibility that can happen. Um, but because of this ideas um, are not the reality of our direct experience. In our direct experience, you know, maybe we are um, working on poems or doing some activities uh, for a while, um, you know, being a poet. But the other situation comes up uh, for caring for others and caring for themselves uh, happens. Then the situation change. So can we, um, in the situational um, transitions, can we recognize that is happening and honor that that is, hap- uh, that is happening in our experience right now? When we don't, we hang on to that idea of I am so-and-so. We rub against the reality of the situation and that rubbing against began to create a lot of stress in ourselves and for others, right? And this, this rubbing against. So these are not mistakes that we blame for ourselves, but it's pointing to the fact that when we're not aware um, what is happening, we can live our huge part of our lives based on this kind of ideas and without us knowing it. And we can also see that these are the ideas and that uh, can play at a societal level, right? Um, Certain categories of people may have certain ideas about being more worthy of their existence. Um, And others may have the opposite, and you can see, you know, a lot of the inequality and conflicts and injustice began to kind of bubble up from this kind of ideas. And they often can trace down to the notions of existence and non-existence or becoming and non-becoming. So it's quite humbling to see these ideas live and operate in us in quite deep ways. The Buddha continued to point out um, the deeper phenomenon that exists uh, behind these notions. I wanted to just point out for some of you who might be very geeky about this, the way that I'm, I'm choosing to um, kind of express the unfolding of the sutta is based on the Chinese parallel um, version. They have a different order in terms of how the teaching is presented. Uh, in the Pali Canon, uh, it doesn't, it makes not a whole lot of a difference in um, what I'm presenting here. Uh, but for me, it, uh, that ordering seems to make a little more sense uh, in my own mind. But the Buddha continues to say that 
The world is, for the most part, shackled by attraction, grasping, and existing. But if, when it comes to this attraction, grasping, mental fixation, existence, and underlying tendency, you don't get attracted, grasp, and committed to the notion myself, you will have no doubt or uncertainty that what arises. Is just suffering arising, and what ceases is just suffering ceasing. Your knowledge about this is independent of others, and this is how right view is defined. So the first thing the Buddha is pointing out, and after he spoke about the world, the world mostly by and large relies on the notions of. Existence, non-existence, is that he's pointing out a deeper force that keeps these ideas alive in us, and that is the forces of grasping, clinging, craving, attachments. It's through the grasping and attachments that these ideas are kept alive in us. Right. Um, this is something for us to see、uh, in our direct experience. Without grasping, you know, the idea I am a scientist, I'm a career woman. It's just momentary. You know, it's a thought comes from time to time, and it goes. Just a thought. But when there is a craving to continue to establish this. I like this translation word "commit." We commit to it again and again. Now this idea becomes hardened in us more and more. It can almost become a core of ourselves because I am this person, right? I am. And so it's、um, what Buddha is pointing at is to begin to see. This underlying force of grasping and、uh, clinging and craving. Uh, in our、um, meditation, I also offered、uh, to maybe see this conditioned nature of our experience directly. You know, these are some things that we can see. So we can even do a little experiment right now and then see how the conditioned phenomenon of existence comes to be. So I'm going to tell you all a little secret about yourself that you don't know. <laughs> Maybe you know. <laughs> Pay attention to what I had to say, and then see what happens in your experience. So I'm going to to say this. You are all such wonderful yogis. Have anybody told you about this? You are all wonderful, brilliant yogis. See what happens in your lived experience. Maybe there's some pleasantness in you, pleasant feelings in you, some recognition. Maybe sometimes there is that kind of a huff and puff, kind of leaning in. You know, like, boy, wow, I am a great yogi. <laughs> Or some of you might say. What can't be me? You know that can't be me. And so you can see, just by hearing something I said, 
There can be different responses coming out of it. And sometimes the sense of a self is very obvious. And sometimes that sense of a denial is very obvious. Right? And so this is the, um, the direction that the, uh, the Buddha was pointing at. Begin to notice that the leaning in or pushing against. And you can see, you know, now if the whole room is telling you the same thing and watching this process happening again and again, no doubt I am a great yogi. (laughs) There's no doubt. And here it is, you know, a great setup for a failure, right? Somebody just shows up and mildly criticizes us, boom, the whole bubble bursts. And so this commitment to this notion keeps this ideas um, kind of held up, held, held up there. Um, so, it, you know, the, the notion of existence and non-existence can feel quite abstract and uh, high-level and philosophical, but this right view, the definition of a right view that the Buddha is pointing to, is really inviting us to see this directly uh, in our lived experience. And I like that the Chinese translation for right view, zheng jian, some of you may know this, and also has a literal meaning of directly see, direct seeing. The second half of the sutta, the Buddha explained how this right view can be established through seeing. And so this, here it goes. But when you truly see the origin of the world with the right understanding, you won't have the notion of non-existence regarding the world. So when you see how things comes to be, you won't have this idea of non-existence regarding the world. And when you truly see the cessation of the world with the right understanding, you won't have the notion of existence regarding the world. So there are two things happening here. And let's unpack this a little bit, uh, one by one. So a few uh, key words here. When you truly see with right understanding, right understanding here, the Pali term is a samapanya, right wisdom, a clear wisdom. When you see with a wisdom, what do you see? Seeing the origin of the world, seeing how the world, how the phenomenon arises, seeing the condition, the nature of arising. So, for example, we are all here in the situation we're in, you know, listening to a Dharma talk and practicing together. And this is an arising of the situation. But it comes with a whole host of causes and conditions. You all probably drove, walked, and um, the schedule happened to be like this, and you and I are all present here, and there's a whole host of condition, conditions that led to the situation we're in right now, right here. And we can't just say, 
this doesn't exist. We can't just deny, no, this doesn't exist. You know, this is all just a fantasy. No. In our direct experience, we experience this truthfully. There's a truth to this existence. So when we know this, the notion of nothing truly exists, all doesn't exist, that makes no sense. Right? And so that's what the Buddha was pointing at. When we see the conditioned arising of our phenomenon, nothing exists, makes no sense. And then when we truly see the cessation of the world, when we truly see the ending of our experiences, and the notion of a permanent existence, long-lasting existence, makes no sense. When we see that the meeting ends, um, you know, the, the situation ends, that the things stop. We can't just say, oh, this is going to go on forever. You know, that makes no sense. And so what the Buddha is pointing at is in our lived experience, when we begin to clearly see the arising and passing and the conditions leads to arising and passing, we begin to see for ourselves that hang on to these notions of existence, non-existence, totally makes no sense. And we know this for ourselves. And what that entails is very simple, direct awareness. And really being present for this, arising and passing, because what can happen oftentimes is that we don't quite see, so we just hold on to that notion in our head most of the time. You know, we our meeting ended, but we still think, oh, you know, this this would happen again. And, you know, we just kind of have ideas to keep things going. So in this article, um, Lama Rod Owens speak about this radical presence that points to this particular uh, dimension of uh, being aware. It says, Radical speaks to a sense of remembering and returning to a simple and a basic way of being in the world. When we choose this way of being in the world, we feel at home in our own body with no desire to leave it. Because we feel at home in the body, we feel at home in the world. This is a radical presence. And when we know this um, conditioned arising and a passing of our, uh, our ex- experiences, what can happen uh, is that we grant fluidity to our identities. It can float depending on the situation we're in. You know, this moment we can be students and teachers. Next moment we might be buddies. And we can become fluid and we don't have to carry all these ideas along with us. And, um, and the uh, Lama Rod Owens had this sentence, which um, 
spoke to me deeply. I said, practice grants us the space to allow this shifting to happen and to call that shifting our home. So instead of relying on the notions that seems to be quite permanent and persistent, making that at your home and ground, here we rely on the ever-shifting changing of our direct experience and calling that our home. And so I want to end by um, sharing the uh, next piece of the Buddha's teaching, which probably really (laughs) need another Dharma talk, but (laughs) I think we will just end with that. Um, And I'll, I'll do a quick summary after that. And so the Buddha went on to give the teachings on the middle way. And he says, All exists, Katyana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. And this teaching by the middle is not in between existence or non-existence, but the teaching by the middle is the twelve dependent origination of the dukkha, of the suffering, and the dependent cessation of the dukkha. And usually this link starts with um, with ignorance as condition, volitional formations comes to be, with the volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be, and then all twelve links all the way to how the whole mass of the suffering comes to be. And so that's, you know, there are 12 links of this. And then the cessation also um, follows a similar pattern, but it says something like this, with the remainderless fading away and the cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, cessation of a consciousness, and all the way to the cessation of the whole mass of dukkha, or suffering. Maybe what's uh, more important um, is not necessarily to kind of um, remembering these 12 links, but to begin to really pay attention to our lived experience, how the dukkha comes about and how they cease, begin to see the underlying um, conditionality in our direct experience. Because when we know this for ourselves, and the sutta said that this knowledge is independent of others. No one else can talk you out of it because you know this for yourself. And that began to offer a potential to shift, shift the perspective, shift our behaviors. I want to end with this quote uh, from the activist um, James Baldwin. And he said, I am what time, circumstances, history have made of me, certainly. 
but I am also much more than that. So are we all. And so when we see the conditioned natures of our experience, we can acknowledge what is here, what is here right now, um, what is true for ourselves, not denying, not indulging. But when we see this, we also let go of the limitations of notions of who we are. And what this uh, last line that he said point out to is, I am much more than that. All of us are. So there is a vastness of all of our beings that is not defined by the limited notions and ideas and beliefs that we have. But that is done through our direct knowing of what is happening, what is here. So thank you, everybody, uh, for being here. And we, we have a few minutes for any uh, comments and questions or sharing you have, reflections you may have. And the floor is open. I have a question. Here we go. Just one second. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciated and f- feel like I got what you just said, yet I don't, um, I haven't studied and I don't understand independent origination. Do I need to understand that to have understood your main points today? Well, you seem to have answered <laughs> questions <laughs> <Right>. yourself. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you have a sense, you know, in, uh, in your own being. And so this uh, talk is pointing at really began to pay attention to what is happening. Mm-hmm. And maybe when uh, there is a chance to study, mm-hmm. we don't have to resist that also mm-hmm. and come along, and that's good. Um, but it's not dependent on that. Mm-hmm. I think what is more dependent on is to begin to pay attention to what is happening. Yeah? Do you have any recommendations for reading, for understanding? (laughs) There's so many. (laughs) Mm. I'm sure even on Audio Dharma, um, if you search on some talks on dependent origination, I'm pretty sure you'll yeah. find talks on this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Xie um, I have a personal question. I heard that you started uh, your, I guess, path uh, with Buddha Dharma. It was Mahayana Buddhism, but then you got uh, drawn to the Theravada Buddhist. This is actually my first time ever in a Theravada uh, type of uh, in a monastery, Buddhist monastery. So can you elaborate on like what uh, the difference maybe for also others? Seems like it would be useful. What's the difference between Mahayana and Theravada, and why did you get, get drawn to Theravada? Yeah, I... Um I feel a little hesitant to kind of um, 
I don't, I don't feel I'm qualified to kind of do a real broader perspective. I can talk about my personal perspective and what happened to myself. And I continue to hold um, both of um, the lineages with a high regards and uh, deep respect. And I happened to start with Mahayana first because I met um, Mahayana Sanghas, um, and I resonated with a lot of teachings there, a lot of um, the community that I really uh, enjoyed. And um, But the particular community I, I was part of, we didn't have a lot of um, meditative um, yeah. opportunities. And I was very caught up by all the teachings in my head. And uh, I just... I felt like my head was about to explode if I keep on doing the studying, and I really needed to, to know this in my own experience. And so when I began my meditative practice, it was in the Theravada tradition, and that's when I began to meditate, and that spoke so much to me. And so today, I continue to uh, maybe... Um, study and uh, learn um, in different ways in some different traditions. But now I, I kind of, um, I bring along uh, kind of my uh, lived experience and the uh, direct uh, experience and driven practice with me. And so that helps me understand a lot of um, Mahayana teachings. Uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but uh, understand the certain dimensions of a Mahayana teaching. And this particular sutta I quoted was sometimes recognized as a seat of uh, the Mahayana tradition because um, the scholar and the practitioner uh, Nagarjuna um, uh, had this uh, profound teaching around the middle way and this was the kota he. Mm. Uh, this was the sutta he quoted. Yeah. Mm. So there is a, maybe a, a deep roots, a deep common roots. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, no, just just a little follow up. So you mentioned uh, direct experience. Do you mean like uh, direct insight or direct to you? I guess to clarify. Um. Uh, direct, what, yeah, you said like direct experience, I guess, medita- direct meditative experience, direct uh, or direct insight, like this is insight meditation, I guess, right? That's uh, Yeah, ter- the, the practice that I'm uh, mostly engaged in is the insight meditation practice. I see, so like noting or the, or the mindful meditation, what's... Uh, yeah, that also changed and <laughs> okay. shifted quite a lot, you know, uh-huh. over the years of the practice. And I did a start with um, Amahasi Sayadaw's uh, tradition. And, um, and that kind of continued to evolve and shift and change. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to appreciate your talk and your being here. And to loop back to the beginning of your talk with the uh, experience of your child <laughs> I, I'm remembering that um, my own young, youngest uh, child at one point said 
I'm going to go on Craigslist and find a better mom. (laughs) (laughs) I think all parents have been told that there's one way or another in their lives. (laughs) Yeah. They're very honest. I found the truthful. It was great to have a mirror coming back. Yeah. Bill. You mentioned the Chinese parallel um, uh, scriptures. Um, this is just kind of a technical point because I'm kind of interested in this. But um, uh, what I've heard is that since the Pali Canon is in a language that's close to what the Buddha originally spoke, that it must be primary or primal, and that the Chinese versions of the Pali Canon must therefore be a later translation. And so we can just stick with the Pali Canon, right? Because um, it's closer the original. Um, and, and yet, I've also heard that there are a number of places in the Chinese um, um, versions that are clearer or make a little bit more sense, and that perhaps, therefore, the um, Pali Canon might be <laughs> a later translation from the Chinese that would didn't get the translation very done very well. So, in other words, it's just not entirely clear uh, if yeah. the Pali Canon is always closer to the original teachings, whatever they were. Does does that make sense, or and is this something you yeah my know, under- know about? Yeah, yeah. My understanding is this is an ongoing kind of scholarly study a topic for sure. Um, there is no definitive statement to say that uh, uh, the parallels are later than the Pali Canon. Um, there may be certain collections that one can make uh, a little more definitive answer, uh, a statement than others. And so um, the Chinese parallel comes from Sanskrit uh, collection. So that's translated through the Sanskrit version. Um, but it's it's not totally uh, clear, uh, actually, that uh, there is a such definitive answer about which one is first and which one is later. And so, um, this you know, this is ongoing ongoing research uh, still in this domain. When I, um, uh, uh, for me personally, looking at the different versions. Um, now, I encourage this for those who have a different, um, maybe either mother tongues or different language um, capacities, to do look at different translations. And they do have, um, they can be quite meaningful for me because I'm not, I wasn't born uh, here and uh, I didn't grow up here. I came when I became a young adult. I had a very little emotional association with English language. And on so the so is the translations, you know, and kinda like a lot of words as a the emotional resonance with them is kinda learned that you know, a taste. But with the Chinese translations, I have an immediate sense 
uh, oftentimes what what they are, and in kind of in almost a somatic way. And so this is you know something for each of us to explore. I mean, looking at the different words, even the uh, English translations. There are different words, um, different English words that translate uh, the same poly and uh, poly term, and so um, they may be helpful. You know, that's a, a helpful aspect of studying and learning. So, yeah. So, thank you for bringing that up. It's yeah. just a technical note, but but sometimes uh, you know the question does come up, and and maybe it's just best to look at all the translations if you have access. To more than one version, and and just sort out for yourself what what makes most sense to you. Yeah, 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 and and know that that may change over time. <laughs> yeah, I think we're almost time. So uh, thank you, thank you for your presence here, for being here, and studying, learning, and practicing together. What a delight. And my understanding is uh, those who are online will have a online uh, Zoom handout, <laughs> and the, for those who are here um, in person, we also have a handout opportunity. So we can go to the parking lot, and there are folding chairs that you can take to go to the parking lot. You can have tea or just you know chat a bit as a community. And um, that's just about twenty thirty minutes um, that we can we can be together. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everyone.